Genesis chapter 2. I'm just going to read verse 21 through verse 25. We'll be referring to portions of chapter 2, portions of chapter 3. But starting in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. I'm going to speak to you here today about the removal of shame. Jesus, help me, God. By your spirit, Lord, help me, Lord, to convey this message, to convey your truth, to convey your word. Help us to receive it. Help us to hear it with spiritual ears. To be changed by it, God. Help us, Lord, to realize what you have purchased upon the cross. That you took shame upon your own self so that we don't have to live in shame. And it is sin that brings shame upon all of creation. But God, it's by your cross that you offer forgiveness and the removal of shame in every person who had humbled themselves, God. Let that be our testimony, each and every one, here this afternoon, in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. When you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, it is the creation account. And we're all very familiar. It's the very beginning of the Bible, and God created on the first day, and the second day, and the third day, all the way to the sixth, and on the seventh, the Bible says that he rested. And then it talks about in chapter 2 about man and man's place in the program of God and his creation. That man was made in the image of God. That he made him unlike any other creature that roamed the earth. If you just think about the millions and millions of organism and, and organisms and animals that exist in the world. Think about just, just the, at the microscopic level. There are millions of species of organisms that scientists have not even discovered yet because some of them live deep beneath the Earth's crust. You just, you just think from the, the smallest cell organism all the way up to an elephant, if you will. In all of creation, you think about the wide array and the depth of God's understanding and what He created in the vastness of creation. You look at the universe and they can find no end to the universe. They say it's continually expanding. And, and they have determined that it all started at one point in time, which would be the creation account. But you just think about the expansiveness of the universe. You think about how, just how big the world is. And you realize how small you are. But then when you see that when God made man... When God made man, he created us in his image. He made you in a very particular, special manner. And that, what that means is to make you into his image, it means that he made you in such a way to where you can have, when it comes down to it, you can have communion with that creator. You can communicate on a spiritual level, on a level that no other beast of the field can do. That nothing else can communicate with their creator except man who is created in the image of God. He has given every single person the capacity to be in communion with him. To be in fellowship with him. Just as, the, just as you are having fellowship one with another here today, that was God's intention for all of men, for all of women, to have perfect fellowship with us. And he did that by creating us in his image. Creating us in his image. And by doing so, he desired to have fellowship with us. Not because he needed us, but because of his own sovereign will and desire, he did it. And he has given you the capacity to know the God of this universe. To know him on a first name basis. 
And that is the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God. That they would, in the cool of the day, walk together. And he would actually commune and speak to them. And he gave Adam dominion over the world, over the, over the, the world. And he gave names to the animals. And, and, and as God had dominion and authority over man, he gave man dominion and authority over the world to be a good steward of it. And we see here this peculiar statement added at the end of chapter 2. It talks about now that, that Adam needed a help meet. He needed somebody. He was lonely. And as a man, I am so thankful for my wife. So very thankful. If you're married, you can completely understand this in a special way. How that God created Eve specially for Adam. Took a rib out of his own body and created woman from the rib of man. And then Adam says, you've come from me, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. And for this reason, fall, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one. We read that oftentimes at a wedding. And in this peculiar one verse is added here. And they were both naked. The man and his wife and were not ashamed. In the world that we exist here today, this is post-fall. Now that sin has crept in and had its place in its dominion among the sons of men, that verse does not fit with our experience here and now, does it? They were both naked, man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Today I want to talk about the removal of shame. The removal of shame. Do you know that there are droves of people who walk into the church house every Sunday and they are heaped with shame and guilt in their lives? Not because of a preacher making them feel bad, but because they have things in their life that they know ought not to be there and they know it's not right but they're ashamed of it. And maybe only they know about it. But they are heaped with shame, as it were. They don't know how to, to be unburdened from this heap of shame. And it's important to know how we can be restored and how we can be free of shame and have the removal of shame if we can go back to how did shame enter into creation? How did shame enter into man and woman's experience? What has happened between chapters 2 and 3, there's a vast difference in chapters 2 and 3. And the difference is this. Sin entered into the human experience. Sin entered in. And that's at the beginning of chapter 3. The serpent deceives Eve. You know, Willie getting this prayer request concerning his family member. And how much there's just it's such a tumultuous experience there. And there's plenty of other people we can think of in our lives who we're praying for, whose lives are a mess and they're broken. And the reason is because there is sin that has dominance and reign and governance in their life. Remember this, you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. You choose to sin, you will suffer. Sin never brings blessing, but only a curse. Sin never brings wholeness, but it always leads to brokenness. Sin never, never leads to goodness and love and joy. It leads to this burden that weighs upon you. And it always leads to eventual death. That's what sin does. And there was no sin up till the end of chapter 2. No sin at all. And so because there was no sin, there was no shame, there was no knowledge of sin, there was the existence of evil because the serpent... Lucifer and his eight fallen angels had already rebelled against God. So there was in the universe, if you will, there was the existence of evil. But for Adam and Eve, there was no knowledge of evil and good. So to be naked was morally neutral because it had not been tainted by sin. Sin always perverts. It always taints. It, all, it will always skew what God intended to be a blessing. Sin will take sex and what it is meant to be a blessing and, he, and sin will, will, will skew it and pervert it when it should be a blessing between a man 
and a woman who are husband and wife and, 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 and sin and the, the flesh and the devil will skew it. It becomes a source of great heartache and brokenness and betrayal. And you go on and on. But because sin entered into the earth in chapter 3, shame entered in. So look here at chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, the serpent is talking to Eve. Did God really say? Look at chapter, uh, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The very end of chapter 2 says, and they were naked and they were unashamed. Sin entered in, the knowledge of evil entered in, and they realized that they were naked one with another, and obviously, now God, now we know that God knows we're naked, and so they prepare for themselves fig leaves and covered themselves. With no knowledge of evil before the fall, even nakedness was shameless and innocent. Shame is produced by the consciousness of evil in something. And so they had no shame because they had no knowledge of evil. The motif of nakedness is introduced here and plays an important role in the next chapter. That is, talking about 2 and 25. In the Bible, nakedness conveys different things. In this context, it signifies innocence in chapter 2. There's no fear of exploitation, no sense of vulnerability. And so the same way that a newborn child, an infant, or even up to the age of a toddler can, can walk around completely naked is because they're utterly innocent. They've not come to the understanding of what right and wrong is. And for a child to be in their, their, their state being born naked, there's no shame there. There's, there's, there's no vulnerability there. But when they come to the understanding of right and wrong and the sin nature, um, some kids later than others start wearing clothes. And so before chapter 3, before the fall, there was beauty in the shameless wonder of that original marriage. They found their complete gratification in the joy of their one union and their service to God. With no inward principle of evil to work on, the solicitation to sin had to come from without, not from within. And so there, there was this unashamed communion with God, this unashamed communion one with another, a husband and wife. Because sin had not entered the picture. And they had no knowledge of sin. They had no knowledge of anything. You, 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 um, you want to guard your children from the hard aspects of the realities of life. As long as you can, you want to shield your children from things that are really, really weighty in the life experience. And no child should have to be weighed down with the same thing that the parents are weighed down with. No child should have, and sadly because children are abused and they're in environments where they are exposed to ungodly behavior, children are exposed to evil, some of them earlier than others, and it's very sad to see that innocence dissolve, to see them come to the understanding of what sin is, what wrong is, and then for them eventually to, to partake in it when the sin nature, which is always there, has dominance. And so after the entrance of sin, we read in chapter 3, after the entrance of sin into the race, nakedness now takes a negative sense. After the fruit is taken, after they do it together, it's very, very interesting that now he, they make, there's a distinction made. They knew they were naked and they were ashamed. So nakedness takes a negative sense hereafter. It is then usually connected, it is now connected with a sense of vulnerability, shame, exploitation, and exposure. Such as the idea of uncovering nakedness, either in sexual exploitation 
or in captivity in war. If you read in certain areas of the Old Testament, whenever a conquering nation would take um, the defeated nation as spoils for war and they would lead the soldiers or the men away as slaves, they oftentimes would make them walk away naked. The defeated uh, army or defeated soldiers because it was the ultimate exploitation of this defeated army in that we're going to make you feel as shameful as possible. And they would uncover their nakedness and make them march to their home base, if you will. What is shame? Shame is a painful sensation excited by a consciousness of guilt or of having done something which injures reputation or by of that which nature or modesty prompts us to conceal. Feelings of guilt and shame are subjective acknowledgments of an objective spiritual reality. So with the entrance of sin and the knowledge of evil, shame entered in because shame and guilt are the subjective acknowledgement of an objective spiritual reality. It is the feeling of guilt when you have transgressed an objective law of God. And guilt and shame are a little different. Guilt is judicial in character. Shame is relational. Though related to guilt, shame emphasizes sin's effect on self-identity. It has immense uh, personal effect upon your person. This feeling of shame. Being ashamed of something you've done, something you've said, some sort of action in your life. But there is an intended usefulness. Now on this side of the fall, there is an intended usefulness God uses shame and guilt for a purpose, though. So, where, where the world would, would, would do everything it takes to remove shame by, by justifying sin or covering it with drugs or alcohol or, or trying to convince yourself that you haven't done anything wrong, you're not, you're not wrong, there's a, an intended purposefulness in feeling this guilt and shame now in this, this fallen world where sin has rule and dominance. You see, shame can work upon the God-given conscience. Every single person has a God-given conscience. You go to the far recesses of any kind of jungle in a third world country, you go there, those people are going to worship something. And usually... In tandem with worshiping that something, they are doing something to atone for their mistakes, for their sin. Though they don't have a full understanding of the law of God and righteousness and who the true God is, there's going to be some sort of understanding that there's something bigger than us, and there's going to be understanding that we're just not right. It's also interesting that you can go to the far recesses of anywhere, doesn't matter how civilized or not, and there's going to be a basic understanding of right and wrong. You're going to innately know that it's wrong for you to take my wife. You're going to know it's wrong for you to take my food or my money. You know it's going to be wrong when you lie and you deceive me. Innately, doesn't matter where you are, what you've been exposed to, this sense of being done wrong or doing somebody else wrong is innate to our human, human uh, nature because God has given every single person a conscience, a God-given conscience that he can use. And so there is this intended usefulness of shame that can work upon the God-given conscience. And sadly, when there is increasing depravity in society... The result is an increasingly seared conscience. When there's an increased depra depravity in a culture, it's linked to a seared conscience. Which ultimately does not allow shame to move upon the God-given moral epicenter that is the conscience. And so, for example, let me explain. For those of you who are older than me, you've seen a great change in the moral landscape of America over the last 50 years. The last 30 years. And even, I have seen it 
as young as I am, the last 10 years, we have made leaps and bounds in a negative moral nature. It wasn't too long ago that President Obama esteemed same-sex marriage, supported same-sex marriage. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, they're talking about bathrooms at Target. And it's just one thing after another, week after week, month after month, year after year, before you know it, same-sex marriage is now legalized throughout the entire land. You see an increased rate of children born out of wedlock. You, you see the millions of babies that are aborted, that are murdered through abortion. And you see increasing rates of all these things. Whereas, let's say 30, 40 years ago, there was a shame attached to these particular things. And so while the people may not be Christians, there was a greater sense and understanding of what morality was and there was an intended usefulness in shame upon the God-given conscience in that it was shameful. It was shameful to have an abortion. It was shameful to, to be engaged in, in premarital sex. It was shameful to have part in homosexual behavior. And now all of it is just full fling, wide open, out in the open, and there's absolutely no shame. There's no blushing. It's gone to the, to the lengths that you would never have thought it would when it comes to the moral degradation of this country. And that's not just me fear-mongering. I tend to be very reserved in the things that I say. But I can see it before my eyes. And I would not be surprised. Again, this is not me fear-mongering. I would not be surprised if in the coming decades there will be increased religious, religious persecution. Because that's hate speech and you're bigoted. If you've had an abortion, God forgives. <clears throat> if, you've, if you've made any kind of mistake sexually, God forgives. If, if there's same-sex tendencies and, and, and attraction and there's homosexual behavior, God delivers and He forgives. He forgives. But you see, by the existence of, there's a particular website called shoutyourabortion.com. And what this website is, it's, a, it's a, an avenue for women who have had abortions. It's an opportunity for them to share about their abortion experience because it is intended by the creators of this website really to remove the shame of those who have had abortion. Because if you've talked to, if you can talk to a lot of women who have had abortions, there's a lot of shame in their lives, a lot of guilt because they know what they've done. And, and, and there's a lot of regret there years later. And so they're trying to say, no, 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 no. Don't be ashamed. You didn't do anything wrong. No, no. You should be proud of it because it's women's rights. And it's your right to choose. And it's health care. And you dictate and you steer your own life. And you conquer the world because you're a strong woman. So you need to shout your abortion. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And so on this point of abortion and a plethora of other points, you see... You see how that there's no shame. There's no consciousness of wrongdoing, which is what that shame is. There's no subjective understanding that you have transgressed an objective law. And so you see the moral decay in our society. But God's intention in that shame is that shame resulting from wrongdoing when that calls us to go hide, when that calls us to go into the shadows, the intended usefulness of shame to experience the weightiness of your sin and having broken the law of God, here is the intended usefulness of that shame. And so that you can come out in the open and hide yourself, not behind the bush, but hide yourself in the cross of Jesus Christ. Any kind of guilt, any kind of consciousness of sin... God does not want to keep you there. It's intended to drive you to the foot of Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient means by which that shame can be removed. The result of sin and turmoil and brokenness and heartache. All of that can be removed at the cross of Jesus Christ. But sadly, like Adam and Eve, so many people want to go 
and cover their shame, cover their guilt, go hide, go justify it, and sweep it under the rug when God is trying to make it front and center so that you would be driven to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So there's, we all know there's nothing new under the sun. And the way that Adam and Eve responded to sin and shame is the same way that people today respond to it. There's nothing new under the sun. The sinful human nature responds. And so let's look at that. I want to make quick, a quick three points here. And that there are three ways by which we can determine you can respond to shame. You can respond to the, your consciousness being pricked by the Holy Spirit, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit when the word is preached. There are three ways here we're going to look at how that you can respond. And we're going to see that this coincides with the response of Adam and Eve. Number one, number one response to shame. You hide from God and you hide from people due to fear. You hide from God and you hide from people. Look at Genesis 3 and 7. Then their eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Having committed the sin themselves and now living with its immediate consequences, that is, the experience of shame, the loss of innocence, and that they are aware that they are naked, they attempt to alleviate the problem themselves. Themselves. They turn inward. They resolve to fix it themselves. Rather than driving them back to God, their guilt leads them into a self-atoning, self-protecting procedure in that they cover their own selves. Maybe you've heard this preached many times, every which way. And so I, I will cover some things maybe you've heard a thousand times over. But the truth still stands and we need to hear it. They cover themselves in their own self-atoning way. And the same applies even today. Man attempts to atone and cover his shame by his own efforts, but it is never enough. So that is what religion is. R religion is attempts to atone a holy God by your own works. That's what all religions have in common. It's this understanding that there is this God that we worship and we've transgressed his law whether if it's pagan culture, whatever it is. There's this basic understanding. And I can save myself by my own works. I can save myself by my own works. I can do enough good to make this wrong right. But if you notice, Adam and Eve, they first didn't hide from God. They, hurt, they hide from God. They hid from each other. Their husband and wife. But they got fig leaves for themselves and they, because they were ashamed in the presence of each other. And they hid from each other. And what shame will cause many people to do, even in the midst of the church, even in the midst of people of God, they will hide themselves for fear that people will truly find out who they are. When they've got stuff going on and they're hiding things. We can cover ourselves with religious activity in a smile, with Christian cliches and theological terms, but it is a desperate attempt to hide shortcomings from others. There are people who live under this distressing awareness that things inside them don't fit the expectations of everyone around them. There are so many people in the church today who would love to confess their struggles, but they are too fearful of, because of the condemnation of the church. And are there people in the church who condemn? Yes. Who judge? Yes. And you have that everywhere. But they are fearful of what people will say. 
how people will view them if they're honest and they're vulnerable and they say, I have this sin in my life. I have this thing in my life. I need to be free of it. But I'm so ashamed and I'm fearful of what people will now think and say about me that I'm just going to be quiet. And I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to cover it up with a bunch of Christian cliches and a smile and what looks like normal and, 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 and just go about my everyday business and nobody knows what I'm facing. And we cover it up and it, and it looks good for a while. And then not only that, we try to self-atone that is before God himself. It is, this is so tragic where... Before, there was a great delight in God's presence in chapters 1 through 2. There is now a great dread associated with the approach of God. They hide themselves from God in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's one of the most tragic verses you can read in the Word of God. They hid themselves from the presence of God. It's the very presence of God that I yearn for, that I hunger for, that I thirst for. It's in His presence where there's fullness of joy. It's in His presence that He extends to me everything I need, that by a word He grants things into my life. It's in His presence that I'm refreshed and rejuvenated and I'm given guidance and I'm given wisdom and I'm rebuked and I'm corrected and I gain wisdom. It's in His presence that I gain all these things. But now with the injection of shame and sin, there is a great dread in association with the presence of God. How tragic. How tragic that, that even in a church service when the presence of God is moving and, and there's a sweetness there and there's a, there's a great, great presence of God that we can value and appreciate, there are some people in that very moment who feel as exposed as ever because they feel like there's a great dread in association with the presence of God because I can't enter in like these other people can. There's some things in my life. There's this shame. There's this guilt. And I am dreadful of the presence of God. And so if not coming to church, I won't even come to church. And that is the sinful human nature doesn't want to be convicted, first of all. And it stays away and it tries to atone for itself and do good works. And it hides from people and it hides from God. The inclination of our flesh and the lies of the devil tell us to flee the presence of God. That you are a failure and God will not receive you. But isn't it so interesting that God sought them out? God sought them out. He asked Adam, where are you? You've heard this taught and preached. Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. Anytime God asks a question, it's not for him to get the answer. It's so it'll cause us to think when God asks a question. Adam's saying, yeah, where am I? I'm wearing fig leaves and I'm hiding in a bush from the creator of the universe. Who am I fooling? Where am I at? I'm in a shameful pit. This is where I'm at. Why? Because of sin, because of disobedience, because of transgressing God's law. And so we try to hide from people. We try to hide from God. This, when the shame comes, rather than running into the presence of the Lord. Number two, we can all altogether avoid the shame, avoid the guilt. And here's what they did. Look at verse 12. Then the man said, look at verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You've read this a thousand times again. You've heard this. But what, did, what, what does the human nature want to do? The flesh, deflect, deflect, justify, sweep under the rug, avoid, avoid dealing with this shame, which is useful, 
which should drive me to the presence of God. You see, Adam and Eve, they should have been so overwhelmed by this sin that when they heard the presence of the Lord coming through the cool of the day, this shame should have driven them to the presence of God and saying, how do we fix this? Can you help us? Can you do this for us? But God came to them. And even in that scenario, He was still merciful to them. But we avoid the human nature, the flesh, the carnal nature. It wants to avoid shame altogether. No one enjoys the feeling of shame. Nobody enjoys the feeling of guilt. And so, rather than deal with the guilt which should drive you to the presence of God, you then try to justify the sin. You try to justify the shame. Or you blame it on somebody else. Well, you don't know how I was raised. You don't know how I was abused. You don't know my life experience. You don't know the trials and tribulations I've go through. I am the way I am, and it's not my fault. And we don't take personal responsibility for actions we ourselves have chosen to do. And we blame somebody else, and we, we try to sidestep the Word of God coming in to peg us to the wall. But the truth of the matter is that every single one of us here today, it is as if you do stand naked before God because you can hide nothing. All of us stand exposed, bare, and naked before a holy and righteous God who knows all things, who sees all things. And He will not have the wool pulled over His eyes. He sees all. He knows all. And so we can try to deflect, we can try to blame somebody else, we can try to justify and lessen, we can rearrange the definition of sin, we can reduce murder of babies to nothing but women's choice or women's health care. You see the switcheroo there? And we deflect, whereas we don't deal with the shame and the sin by running into His presence. But look here at verse 21. Let me bring it home for us here. And so, God, He declares a curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, upon the man. The consequence for sin, you choose to sin, you choose to what? Suffer. And so, the woman experiences sorrow and conception and childbirth and the man will have to, by the sweat of his own brow, work for his own food and it'll be hard to come by and he'll have to toil against thorns and thistles. And look at verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was of the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And we all know what this means. We all know the symbolism. Clint brought it out wonderfully a, a few Wednesdays ago. How that God has always been faithful to provide a remedy for our mistakes. God has always been faithful from the very beginning to provide a remedy for our sin. That even before it was done, He had already provided a means that is the Lamb who is slain before the foundations of the earth. God knowing all things, He had already prepared a way by which we could be reinstated to communion and fellowship with God, which is your first and foremost calling. It is to know God. To make Him known. And so, here it is. If you find your place in this, find yourself in this place, here is the intended desire of the Lord. Here's the intended desire of the Holy Spirit. Run into that presence. Run into the presence of the Lord. Because listen, shame cannot exist in the presence of God's grace. Shame cannot exist in the presence of God's mercy. And the only way that you can approach God's presence is on your knees. That is, in a prostrate manner, 
humbling yourself. And it is the humble that God gives grace to. There is no safe harbor anywhere else except in the presence of God. That when the person who is contrite of heart, who is broken over their sin, who has humbled themselves and they allow their shame and their guilt to drive them into the presence of God, he cannot resist to pour out his grace and his mercy on that person. And that is at the point of the cross, at the place of the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know that the greatest shame that anyone can ever experience in the first century church was the shame of crucifixion. There was no greater way to be executed, to be taken out. There was no more shameful way than to go by way of crucifixion. Extremely shameful. It's scandalous enough to say that God died, but then to say by what means He died, by crucifixion, it is outside comprehension of the normal human mind. It does not sound wise. It does not sound great. But the foolishness of God is greater than man's wisdom. Amen? And God has prepared a means by which we can be saved. And that is through the cross. You see, not only did Jesus go through immense torture physically, but we cannot overlook the effect of shame and what it plays in the crucifixion. The crucifying a person was not intended to take them out quickly. It wasn't like beheading. It was intended to be a cruel, torturous, long death. Intended to put you on public display for all to see and to be a warning to any other wrongdoer. You see, even in the Roman Empire, the Roman, the Roman Emperor Cicero argued that the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. The cross was not even spoken about in the household of Roman citizens. It was that taboo. It was that shameful. It shouldn't even be on the lips of a Roman citizen to speak about the cross. It was that shameful. It was, it was reserved for, it wasn't even, it wasn't even allowed to, to uh, crucify Roman citizens. Only for a grave um, um, mistakes such as treason were Romans allowed to be crucified. It was usually non-Roman citizens, thieves, liars, those who had transgressed the law of Rome to the greatest degree. And in order to bring the most shame upon this person, they chose crucifixion as the form to do it. And the Romans were not the first to do it, but they were certainly the ones who were able to perfect that means of execution. So if you read, and I was just reading in, in, in uh, prayer meeting the other night, in the book of Luke, at the end of, of Luke, and the account of Jesus' crucifixion, it, and if you just think about this, Jesus, who already has been flogged, who already has been, uh, um, had his beard plucked out, he's been falsely accused, and, and before the Sanhedrin, he's, had the crown of thorns put upon his head. Uh, they hit him with a rod. They put this purple robe upon him to mock him. Now he has to bear his cross. He can't bear his cross because he is so deficient of energy and strength and he's already lost enough blood so they compel another man to carry his cross. And they take him outside the camp, outside the, the city, to Golgotha, to Calvary, and they crucify him next to two other thieves who rightly deserve it. And you put a nail through the two feet and you put a nail through this, this area of the wrist. It's not the actual hand, but it's right here at the wrist between the two bones that connect um, um, the, the, the arm bones. And so it's a much more secure there. And so you're suspended by three nails. And, and furthermore... Unlike what the movie depictions may show, you're not wearing a loincloth. You're completely naked. Naked. Talk about shameful. You are bleeding. 
You are completely exposed. You can't cover yourself because with your hands because your hands are nailed to a post. And you are there naked upon a cross for all the world to see. And Jesus has done nothing to deserve this. And he's right in the middle of two other men who do deserve it. And in this scene, it says that the Pharisees and the rulers, they came along and they wagged their heads at him. And they said, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? Simultaneously, the soldiers are, are, are casting lots to, to uh, trade off his garments. You simultaneously have a thief who deserves it. And he is reprimanding Jesus. He's blaspheming Jesus. And Jesus is up there on this cross. He sees the disciples. He sees, or he sees his mother and one of the disciples there uh, crying. He, he sees all this before him. And, and how does Jesus respond? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not only were you completely and utterly naked, but to top it off, because you lose bodily function, first comes urination caused by fear, then comes defecation caused by pain. My Savior Jesus Christ hung naked upon a cross. Urinating and defecating. Because he restrained himself to a physical body. And he felt every stripe. He felt every rod across his back. He felt every nail. The only way that you can breathe when you're crucified is because you have all the weight putting down upon the nail through your feet is that you have to push up in order to take a breath in. And because you slowly lose strength because of the blood loss, you, a lot of people who were crucified, they died by suffocation. Because you become so weak, so weak, that you can no longer push up to take a breath in. Because it's too painful and you don't have enough strength. And so your diaphragm, you cannot allow your diaphragm to, to re receive air and to, to, to allow your lungs to take air. And you, you suffocate there upon a cross. Sometimes it took days for these men to die. And that was purposeful. To make it as shameful as possible. As shameful as possible. Not only did you have shame upon your own self, but you brought shame upon your family. You brought shame upon all of your family. And they wanted it to be disassociated with you. And that's the reason why most of these bodies were not given a proper burial. Because they was too shameful to take this this family member and go bury them because of what they've done, the death that they died. And most of them were taken down from the cross and thrown into a refuse pit where vultures and scavengers would go and mutilate the body and finish it off. You want to talk about shame? The God who created you and me, who intended you to be in fellowship and communion with Him, and because we have sinned and we have broken that fellowship, He has provided a means by which you can be reconciled to the Father. And the means by which He chose was a cross. He took on the ultimate shame that anyone could take in that day and age. How scandalous that is. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And it doesn't stop there. And has been highly exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. You see, In doing that, 
in taking on the wrath of the Father, in paying the penalty for your sin, for your shame, for your guilt, He took it upon Himself. That word despise means He made nothing of. He considered it nothing in light of the joy of walking in the will of the Father, in light of the joy of many sons coming to glory, in light of the great prize and reward that He would receive by the death of Himself and giving Himself, He counted the, he counted the shame as nothing. He despised it for you and for me. So that I don't have to walk in shame anymore. Because he has ultimately paid the price for it. He has paid the price for shame and guilt. And he has paid the price for the ultimate result of sin, which is death. Colossians 2 and 13 through 15. I think it's, gonna, it's up there. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. That's guilt. That's shame. That is the law saying you're guilty. You're guilty. The law was created so that all men's, all men's mouths may be shut and every man found guilty. That's our position. But he forgiven us. Of our trespasses. And he has taken the handwriting of requirements against us. Which were contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way. Having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed. Oh I love this part. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Now he has made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them in it. The beautiful, glorious majesty is this, in that taking on shame upon himself, he has now, through death, through humility, through giving of his own life, he now has provided a victory for the people of God. And now he makes a public spectacle out of the devil and all the powers that may be through the power of the cross. It's been nailed to the cross. Before he died, he said, it is finished it's done it's paid in full by my blood by my blood no more shame because i took the shame no more guilt i took it no penalty for sin i paid the price he became the victor over the grave he became the victor over sin and now he has made a public spectacle triumphing over the principalities and powers. And this has a historical context. Peter, or uh, Paul writing to an audience who fully understood the, what he was alluding to in this passage of Scripture. Anytime a general or an army defeated another army or another people group, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the message, you would lead a triumphal entry into the city, into the state, the capital city. And the general would be there leading the triumphal entry with all his spoils of war, including all of the defeated foes, that is, the other soldiers and enemies that they had defeated, who would eventually be sold into slavery if not executed. And you would parade them through the cities. It'd be a day-long parade, parading these, this enemy who you have defeated, and now, even still, they would unclothe them and make them walk through the streets naked. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He is leading a triumphal entry through the world. Leading it by way of the cross. And he's making a public spectacle of the world, of the flesh, and the devil, for the child of God who has placed their faith and trust in Him. And now, we are beneficiaries of the author and finisher of our faith who has been placed at the right hand of the Father. And now everything that is above earth and on earth and below earth We'll see that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and everything will bow. As I said, 
Shame and guilt cannot exist in the presence of God's grace. Come help me. When you look at, for instance, the story of the prodigal son, he wanted his inheritance early. He took all that his father gave him. He went off to a distant land and he wasted it all. Utterly wasted it all. He sinned against himself. He sinned against his father. He sinned against his God. He wasted it on women. He wasted it on riotous living. You choose to sin. You choose to suffer. And he found himself at rock bottom sitting in a pigsty saying, I wish I could eat the pig's food. Talk about a shameful place. Oh my goodness. What shame. Where once there was this haughty and prideful boy who's going to make a way for himself. He's now in a pigsty with unclean animals wanting to eat pig food. And he said, I know what I'll do. The Bible says he came to his senses and he said, even my father's servants are in better position than I am. If I come back to my father and I repent, maybe, maybe he'll make me a servant. And then I won't have to live, at least I won't live like this. Because he takes care of even his servants. And so this long, he begins this long walk of shame back to the father's house. And the father sees him from a distance. He knows it's his boy. He's heard all the stories, all the scandalous stories of what he's done, what he's done to his family's name, how he's wasted the money. He sees that boy, and he begins to run. He begins to run. And he meets that boy on the road, on the way to the house. And this son is full of shame and guilt and remorse and regret. And I can imagine he just puts his head into his father's chest, and he says, Father, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you and God in the heaven." And I could imagine just as he's, he's about to say, just make me a servant. The father says, come home, my son. And he takes a robe and he puts a robe on him. And he puts a ring on his finger. And he puts shoes on his feet. And he, then they ask him to go prepare a fatted calf. And the older son, obviously, he's indignant and he's upset. And he assuages the older boy's Fear and discontent by saying, my son who once was dead is now alive. We who once were dead in our trespasses and sin, when all the law, when all the guilt and the shame were up against us and it found us guilty, if you will come to the end of yourself, if you will humble yourself and prostrate yourself and make your way into the presence of God, your shame cannot exist in the presence of His grace. It's obliterated because He paid the price at Calvary by His own blood. And now He stands triumphantly as mediator and intercessor for you and for I. And we are co-heirs with Christ. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is what we have available to us. What sin has broken in the very beginning, Jesus mended together by taking shame upon his own self. Taking wrath upon his own self. And offering us a free gift of salvation. Would you bow your heads? Jesus, help us to understand the gravity of what you've done for us. Help us to understand that you did feel every stripe, every vitriolic, hateful word of speech, the betrayal of your friends,
the crown of thorns, the plucking of your beard, the nails in your hands and your feet. You felt the physical pain and then you felt this shame of exposure and embarrassment and humiliation. You experienced all this as man and as God. Show us the weightiness of that here this afternoon, God. God, if anyone here is serious, you are serious. You will freely offer your grace and your mercy, Lord, to anyone who would come to the end of themselves, humble themselves and ask. They can receive what you give them, Lord. You're that good. Would you just begin to pray with me? Just pray to the Lord Jesus, have your way. God, bless us here today, Lord. If there be anything hidden in our lives, God, draw us into your presence, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to run and hide, not to self-atone, not to justify, not to avoid. Help us to run into your presence, Lord. Help us to run to your feet.